I can already speak Burmese and Korean language. It's hard for me to speak another language that you never thought you would speak before. But speaking English just gives you a lot of opportunity. When I arrive to the US, people give me more confidence, more opportunity. I never knew. I never thought I would come here. I never thought I would drive. I never thought that I would meet like different nationality people. I never thought I would speak English. None of those. Everything that's happening right now, I never think of any of those. None. It's awesome that you never thought that you would travel with your friends with a different culture from different country, you know? You get to know them and you just enjoy life and yeah, just be independent woman. When you speak English, there's a lot of things that you can do. It's awesome, I think. <laughs> That's T. She's of Burmese descent and came to the Denver area from Thailand as a refugee. She found herself working with Project Worthmore, a nonprofit organization that provides employment, English language education, community navigators, and operates both a working farm, which employs refugees, and a dental clinic for refugee patients. T works in the clinic. When we recorded this episode, we met her working in a cornfield. She was out in the fields because she spends her day off from Project Worthmore's dental clinic on the farm. That clinic was closed, all but for emergencies, at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. In the clinic, refugees not only receive dental care, but some are dental assistants and work towards their necessary hours for recertification in the United States. Co-founders Frank and Carolyn Anello kept their teams on the payroll without disruption, often preparing shipments of fresh food for clients while the clinic was closed. Today we speak outside, in masks, at Delaney Community Farms with Frank Anello, co-founder and executive director of Project Worthmore. This is Crossings, the Refugee Experience in America podcast, Episode 8. Here's some facts about Project Worthmore's operation from Janice Pugh Waller. Project Worthmore partners with the Denver Urban Gardens to support the refugee community with sustainable agriculture and community building. This program has provided over 2,700 hours of community-supported agricultural training for the refugee farmers, yields 140 varieties of produce, which in turn provides over 17,000 pounds of food per year for the refugee community, also local restaurants, and the Children's Hospital of Denver. Now let's join our interview at Delaney Community Farms. So we're out at Delaney Farms for Project Worthmore, and we're with Frank Anello. May I call you Frank? That'd be great, yeah, that's fine. Terrific. Thanks for joining us here today. Absolutely. This is uh, bucolic. I'm, I'm hearing starlings and crickets. It's a beautiful setting. Frank, can you give me the broad overview of Project Worthmore, thinking about the range of services, education, and job support that you provide to refugees? Sure. Yeah. So Project Worthmore is a, you know, we are a nonprofit that works in the refugee community, um, refugees that uh, live amongst the Denver Aurora area. Um, and 
We run six programs that are really driven by uh, the needs of the refugee community. So over the years, um, we've uh, kind of experimented with multiple programs and we kind of settled in several years ago with um, these core programs. And uh, one being this farming program where we're sitting today, um, where we provide uh, employment for refugee farmers who grow food for the local community. Uh, for restaurants, for individuals, and for fellow um, refugees as well. Single moms, we dedicate a lot of our produce to go to single moms. Well, we also run a five-chair dental clinic um, that serves the refugee population, which also um, provides employment opportunities for refugees who may have been former dentists in their home countries, who are trying to get recredentialed here in the States. Um, so they can work as dental assistants. Um, we have some from Afghanistan, from Sudan, from Burma, um, and from Somalia that work in our dental clinic. Uh, we also provide community navigation, which in a sense is a type of uh, case management. Um, and we strongly believe, again, in this program of hiring from within the community. Uh, we feel we have a better uh, relationship building type of program when you hire um, someone with a lived experience who understands exactly what others are going through and have gone through rather than trying to hire someone who might have a master's in social work from a university here. Um, and, uh, and we have a fresh food program, um, which is um, another program that provides uh, fresh produce to our community. Um, and we do, we know that there's lots of food programs throughout the city. Um, but we really um, wanted to make sure that this food program was more directed towards the needs of the community, the refugee community, where they're um, getting food that they're familiar with. So fresh produce and proteins only. We don't really um, give out canned food or processed foods and breads and sweets and things of that sort. Trying to encourage a, a healthier lifestyle and give them food that they're more familiar with. And then we have a family partnership program um, where you can be mentored or paired together one-on-one -on -one um, and kind of help uh, a newly arrived family or even an existing family who just needs extra help along their path to uh, a new life in uh, the Denver Aurora area. So that's that's quite a bit. I mean, there's uh, occupational training for uh, dental work. Yep. Uh, there's there's working on the farm itself and harvesting. Yep. yep. Um, and there's something called the You May Food Share. Am I saying you, that correctly? You are. You you nailed that. Yep. Yeah. So the UMA Food Share program is, um, so that started out, and that was what I just talked about, the, the fresh produce um, program. So UMA is an individual, his name, he no longer is with us, he's passed away about three years ago. Um, UMA was a refugee um, from Burma, from the group the Karen, and um, had been living uh, in, in Denver for a number of years, and then we... Um, we had been offering services to him for a while, him and his family, and then we had the opportunity to partner with Denver Urban Gardens on the farm. And uh, and Yume was the very first farmer um, from the community to get to work out here. Um, and I mean, he loved farming so much that he had even relocated his family prior to us meeting him to uh, to Palisade, to the Western Slope, um, to work in the um, the peach orchards there because he loved agriculture so much and it was really the only thing he knew and it was the only thing that he felt he could contribute to. So once we discovered Yume and the opportunity um, for him to be, become a farmer out here um, and then unfor the unfortunate turn of events, if you might have seen the video on our website about him, he ended up passing away in August of that year and um, so we decided to dedicate to the program to him 
um, as he was the, the really the founder, the first farmer to get out here and work. So that's where the name came from. And, um, and he was just an instrumental piece of, of where we are today, sitting today. And, you know, there's some excerpts in, in that video that you can look at to where he talks about the opportunity to get his hands dirty again and to contribute and give back to his community. Um, and that's just a, a huge stamp of, of what we do at Project Worthmore and the farmers that are out here today getting to do that same thing. What a lovely tribute to him. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've talked quite a bit already about the farming. I'd like to go back here and, and see if we can get to the origin story of Project Worthmore. You know, what moved you to embark on this journey? Because I assume this isn't, wasn't your first occupation in life. No, no. Yeah, no, I think that um, if we go back, it's interesting. Um, as the years go by, the story gets longer and longer, right? Um, but a little bit of my background is um, prior to Project Worthmore, which um, the first time we in, interacted with the refugee community was August of 2009, but prior to that and during that time, um, my background was in restaurant management. Uh, I had been running restaurants for about 12 years when I had the opportunity um, to work with the refugee community, and that opportunity came through a church that um, my wife and I um, are still a part of today and that is um, it's a vineyard church um, out in Arvada and our church started working um, with Lutheran Family Services which is one of the resettlement agencies here in town and uh, my wife and I were part of this group that the church um, was working with Lutheran in their mentorship program where you can be paired directly with a family a newly arrived family to kind of help them get on their feet which is very similar to our program which is the um, family partnership program um, so what that meant was, you know, the reality was I was in restaurant management. My wife was a dental hygienist at the time. We had two kids um, that were three and a half and a six month old. And we were told you're going to be working with a family from Burma. I had no idea where Burma was. I'd never even heard of Burma at that time. And so I started doing some online research about Burma and what people eat from Burma and what to expect with working with people from that country and what they've gone through to get here. So uh, our first interaction was just up the street here from the farm, really off 225 in Billings, which is like maybe two miles from here. Uh, the family was going to be living in those apartments. And um, so part of our group, my wife and I developed a small team from our church. Part went with the case manager out to the airport to pick them up. The other part was at the apartment um, trying to, you know, furnish it, get it set up to welcome them, prepare a first meal for them. And that part's pretty funny too, because as they arrived into the apartment, we, here we are, we've made a meal for them. You talk about awkward, um, like you're being introduced to this family through a case manager who speaks their language. And it's about a 15 minute introduction, the case manager's gone and there you are, sitting and standing in their apartment with a lot of uncomfortable silence using your hands to motion, there's food on the table, please eat. They've just been on this long journey from um, from Malaysia to Los Angeles to here. And uh, we prepared brown rice, coconut milk, stir fry, and just assuming that's what they would love. And about six months later, when they got a little bit more comfortable with us, they said, that was the worst meal we've ever had. <laughs> we don't eat brown rice, we eat white rice. That rice is really chewy, and I just assumed Brown rice is healthier. That's what we eat here. So there was a, a lot of learning curves along the way. 
um, that we discovered. And uh, so that was like the very first moment we met this family. And another weird encounter too was that day when we pulled into that apartment complex. Is there was um, there were two two kids playing inside of a dumpster. And another child um, in a grocery cart pushed up against the dumpster who was still in a diaper. And they were just playing. And I was completely caught off. Like, how? what is happening here? Like, how is this happening four or five miles from my home? I, did, I had no idea this existed. Um, you know, you drive down 225 all the time. And you don't know what's happening around you when you're caught up in your little world. Um, and I had to find out about this by going to church. And our church working with this family. Um... So that was the very beginning, and the root of the name literally came from that the the husband, the father of of that family. His name is A Thong. First letter is the letter A, and his last name is T H A W N G. We're still friends today. Um, he was like, "I feel worthless here. I have a fourth grade education. He's my age now. He's forty six. So at that time, he was thirty six. And he's like, I have a fourth grade education. I come from the jungle. Um, I don't know English. I feel worthless here. I came here for my family. And like we sat down and talked and talked and talked through translators. And I was like, look, you are a young man. 36 is young. You did not come here at 60 years old, tour, you know, and it's going to be really hard. Yeah, you came here for your children, but you also can be, have a better life because you're long, young and you're, you're worth more than that. So that's really where the name came from. And um, I think a lot of them come here with those same struggles. Like we don't feel like, how are we going to contribute here? And they all come from so many different parts of the world. And that's really how Project Worth More began. Um, and, it, and it was like a, a weekly thing and a daily thing for me. Um, where we would go and visit the family. Um, we started recruiting friends from our church, friends from the restaurants where I worked, and helping them learn English on their apartment floor. And we would take people, and they would sit on their apartment. We'd put adults in one apartment, kids in another apartment, and we had volunteers helping with homework, doing board games, and really trying to help people learn English. And none of us had a background in teaching English, but we spoke the language, and we knew what we felt was important for them for basics. And we did that for over two years. Um, and in that time, we also collected donations. My home, my garage at home was a thrift store full of winter clothes and blankets and toiletries and furniture and you name it. And we were doing everything. Um, and at that time, I was also uh, coaching cross country at Valor Christian High School out in Highlands Ranch. So my day pretty much consisted of uh, volunteering during the day. Um, at this time also I was enrolled in Community College of Denver um, to try and become a nurse. And I quickly quit going to classes because this was, in my mind, this was my calling that God had put on me, um, was to serve this community. Um, and so volunteered during the day, taking people to appointments, taking families to appointments because it, it wasn't just that one family. Like a, it, it turned into multiple families who were like, hey, you're coming all the time to help uh, this family. We also need help. So it just started to kind of spiderweb out into helping more people, getting more volunteers involved, um, to eventually in February 2nd of 2011, becoming an official 501c3. Um, still working as a volunteer up until 2013. Um, where things really kind of started to shift for us. Um, I think my commitment um, 
and my calling and dedication to doing the work had a, a lot of people from the outside kind of viewing what we were doing and seeing the impact that we were having um, just as volunteers and the way that um, I feel like one of my my gifts is bringing people together uh, of multiple faiths, no faiths, just I'm a community person which I think was instilled in me by my mom um, and it's a gift that I have and so people saw what we were doing and like you know what he's working at a restaurant he's doing this during the day he's coaching cross-country he's got two kids imagine what would happen if he actually could step away from the restaurant he didn't have to coach cross-country and he could focus on this so some people from the outside decided to come up with um, an opportunity to, to fund uh, a salary for me and they had committed to two years they ended up supporting me for about three years so I could literally step away from the restaurant and dedicate and that's when things really started to take off because um, I had the time and um, and and here we are today you know with all these programs that I listed off uh, having a huge impact in the refugee community on our and approaching 10 years and predominantly started out serving refugees from Burma um, and Bhutan at the beginning to now we're I, 26 countries that we're serving um, a staff of 25 and 26 seven twenty-eight languages spoken on our staff there's one staff member that you know I'm, she we get to skew our numbers a little bit she's got like nine languages under her belt so <laughs> yeah and you have a farm dog i hear we do have a farm dog chris our farm director brings his dog to work yeah and he's uh he's gonna give us a tour in a little while he is gonna give us a tour chris is a great guy this is his second year on the farm last year he was the farm assistant we hired him uh, to be the assistant last year. He came out here from Michigan. Um, so we did a Skype interview. We interviewed a number of people um, and he was well, well qualified, overqualified for the position. And now he is taking on, uh, he's the farm director. So we're literally out on the farm right now along a budding cornfield. Yes. And we're with Chris Corgan. Chris, what's your position here? I am the director of Delaney Community Farm. And how long have you been doing that? Well, uh, this is my second year on the farm. Last year I was the assistant director, and I took over in October. And did I hear you came from Michigan? I did, yes, from the Midwest. Yeah. And, and northern Wisconsin, where I had been farming. So uh, what is a typical day like here for you, Chris? Ooh, that's a good question. So we, it depends. Uh, the seasons determine the day, uh, obviously. But um, I start my day roughly around 6.30, 7 a.m. And then our, our team, the rest of the team, comes in around 8, 8.30. And then at that point, um, we sort of, at, I get here a little bit early, and I sort of do a walk around the farm, and I sort of prioritize what needs to be done for the day um, because there's if you don't do that you are running around like a chicken with your head cut off so that extra hour 30 40 minutes is super important to sort of prepping the day and then as the team comes in uh, we talk we'll do a walk together sometimes uh, we'll look at the needs and then from that point um, you know we work as a as a team for sure so I prioritize but then Hamadi or Ahmed or Prony will often be like, hey, actually the onion field, you know, they'll point or they'll, they'll explain to me that they think that is uh, more, more urgent. So then we'll, we'll kind of as a team assemble and then based on sort of everyone's 
likes or desires or skill sets, we sort of break off and, and tackle the day. And, and every, you know, our Mondays are harvest and CSA deliveries, which we run. Tuesdays, we also do a harvest and delivery for our restaurant, restaurants um, in the children's hospital. So the first, the Monday, Tuesday, and sometimes Wednesday is, is typically a harvest delivery day for us once the food starts rolling in. And then the rest of the week, we're, we're weeding, we're cultivating, we're taking care of disease or pests, um, and we're just pretty much re or we essentially reorganizing the farm every week. And then the weekend comes, maybe we get a storm, more weeds pop up, whatever it is, and then we start that cycle over again. Um, but, you know, it, it varies. Sometimes things, oftentimes things are breaking, so we're fixing tractors or we're running around getting parts. Um, yeah, it's a, it, a lot of different variables. So as a gardener, yes, I would think that your planting season, we're 45 or 60 days into it? Yeah, we, so actually it's interesting because we don't get our water turned on here till May. So um, we're about a month behind when folks are usually starting to plant out here, um, depending if they have access to water. It, it's actually not uncommon for people on the front range, farmers on the front range, and particularly in metro areas to have their water access sort of determined by the city. Um, so same thing here. Uh, we don't have our water turned on until about May, and then we're probably planting, I think we started planting either two days after that, three days after that. So we've been, but I mean, we've, with the weather in Colorado and sometimes mild winters, um, you know, I was out here this winter working as much as I possibly can, prepping beds, and we have a lot of different sort of projects in the mix. So yeah, it just depends. So I can look about and count maybe about eight people out here in the fields. How many people do you have working right now? Yeah, so typically it's myself, Prony, Ahmed, JC, Clare, and Hamadi. Uh, and T has been, I think maybe you interviewed her, but she mostly is at the dental clinic, Project Worthmore's dental clinic. Um, but she's been helping out here, which has been awesome for the early spring, um, and then sort of on and off. But typically it's, yeah, what, what is that? Five of us, five of us, yeah. Um, in my role, it depends. Some days I'm out here all day with them. Other days I'm doing deliveries. I'm doing damage control on our equipment, um, picking up, uh, running errands, fertilizer, whatever needs to be done. But but the farmers are all skilled, highly capable farmers, um, and and they, a lot of them, especially Hamadi and the folks who have been here for a couple of years. Can, can determine the workflow sort of on their own, depending uh, on the day. So there's about five of us, give or take, uh, you know, the day. Um, mostly full-time. One, one of our workers is, does some part-time work. So. so I clearly see yeah. corn, yeah. tomatoes with yes. the cages up. And yes. They look pretty healthy. Yes. Uh, they just recovered from 70-mile-per-hour wind gusts, actually, so... I'm grateful that they're they're looking as good as they do. Good God, yeah. yes, I remember that wind. Yes. Am I seeing uh, peppers? Yeah, so yeah. we have our tomato field, our hot pepper and sweet peppers. We have eggplants. Um, I can run down the list, but we have beans, um, kale, garlic, shallots, carrots, um, winter squash, potatoes, 
We have some lettuce heads that I'm hoping we can get out of the field soon before the, the heat really kicks on here. Um, we have leeks, we have a raspberry field, we have medicinal herbs, a lot of perennials. We also are growing um, snow peas as well, which are sort of tail end of their life. We'll probably do one more harvest. Zucchinis, eggplant, I mean, essentially we're growing over 35 different crops, give or take, at, at any time of the season. Um, we are in the middle of experimenting with a lot more succession planting and, and the farm over the last 10, excuse me, 15 years has been run a little bit more like a garden, I would say. There's kind of one planting, the crops are tended throughout the season to maintain sort of some vitality. But what we're looking to do is we're looking at a much more sort of production-driven system where as soon as a crop comes out, for instance, I just harvested a, a greens bed, um, a lettuce mix bed, that's done for. I tilled it under and then Prony planted some beets for us today. How does the, uh, the stock supply chain work? Is that coming, are you growing from seed or from your own plantings or so so we so we do transplants so we work with dahlia mental health campus um and pitkins community college they we don't have the infrastructure to grow um our own transplants necessarily mm -hmm. so i start the season in those greenhouses starting those plants and then we partner with them to tend them and then we get them when we're ready to plant um, we do successions of our own inside our community house here that is just about adequate for that um, and then we also direct sow so that the direct sowing putting the seed directly into the soil on our own is the best way for succession planting that's how we for instance we take out the lettuce bed we put in the beets right so that so those crops are, are tend to be our, our direct sown whereas our Initial spring crops are mostly transplant. So we're looking at a lot of brassicas, broccoli, um, uh, Asian greens. It's just before lunch when Chris and Frank continue our tour through the fields. Project Worthmore staff are weeding and preening rows of corn and other stock, which will yield harvests in the coming months. We meet T and Prani. What's that, T? And T's English is really good as well. Hi T, how are you? Good. <laughs> you can stand there, it's fine. Shall I It'll stay pick here? you okay. up. Yeah. So what are you doing here today? Uh, we're just cutting the grass for the corn. Oh yeah. Yeah. You have to keep doing that, huh? All the yeah. weeding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because there's yeah. a lot of weed, so we have to take it before. So th you know the grass and um, the corn can breathe some air since there's so much grass coming grown up over so that's what all of us have to do this right now but yeah it's good until it's grown <laughs> this corn can be placed closer together than we can stand at the moment yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's very social corn prony my name is vincent nice to meet you my name is prony are you from congo yeah prony second yeah so here's chris she's top dog <laughs> top farmer the best. Number one. Musk. No, no. <laughs> yes, but no. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, bro. You know, um, I learned when I spoke to you a, a week or two back that you've recently, quite recently, reopened. 
like yeah. last week? Um, this is our third week. We opened first week of June. You know, everyone that we've talked to, the resettlement agencies, uh, cohort, nonprofits, the worldwide pandemic has had an enormous impact on operations to, you know, provide services for refugees and, yep. and keep continuity. What sort of things did you do during the uh, time you had to be closed? Yeah, well, I think like all of us, we we saw this coming. We saw it, you know, back in, in February and January, we kind of started to, what's going to happen? Is this going to come here? And we, and then March came and it was a reality. And it's, um, I would say, I would love to say that we were ready for it, but no one was ready for this. Um, but um, in my mind, like, I, I love a challenge. Like, I strive on challenge. I really, really do. Um, not that I wanted this to happen, but I'm like, okay, here's another challenge in front of us. I think we can figure out a way to do it. We're going to push through it. Um, we've got the team together, and it's like we cannot disrupt services. I mean, services will be disrupted, but we have to still figure out a way to provide, especially in a time like this. Um, we can't lay anybody off. Um, we have to figure out a way to utilize the entire team, from dental clinic to farm to community navigators um, to myself. And so we sat down together as a team, and we were like, all right, how are we going to do this? Um, we knew we had to close our clinic um, to regular services, um, but we kept our clinic open um, for emergency services. But what that meant for us was, you know, we're used to probably 80 to 100 appointments a week um, that we were seeing, and now we probably saw one to two emergency cases um, during, which is which is great. You know, you don't want emergency cases, but we did keep ourselves open for that. So our, our dental director and our um, clinic coordinator, my wife, um, would take all calls and, um, and try and do what their best over the phone to triage patients that needed assistance. And then at times we'd have to go into the clinic and open up and um, but even the new challenges of reopening the clinic, the amount of PPE requirements now, like, and honestly, like dental is, dental hygienists are now the number one at risk um, because of this being an aerosol. And all they do is um, create aerosols when they're cleaning someone's mouth. So I think it's added 60 to $70,000 to our budget out of nowhere uh, for PPE gear. So you're talking, um, the, the hygienist, anyone who goes into that room is completely gowned up, <clears throat> just like you'd see or hear about, like hairnets, face shields, double masks, glasses, um, <clears throat> gowns, booties, gloves, and every patient that stuff's going away has to be thrown out. So it's like, it's a ton of new gear, a ton of new requirements that um, we have to do. Uh, and But, but while we uh, did that, um, we had several months to really get ourselves together for the reopen that we did in June. Um, the food program, which is another super important program, people relying on food, Monday through Friday, they would come to our office between the hours of 12 to 2 um, to access food. We had over 400 families in that program throughout the year, and that would come and go and participate, but on an average, we were seeing 30 to 50 families a week. So we're like, how do we do that? How do we now continue to get food to those? So Lindsay, um, who is our, um, our food director, um, we decided to move everything from our office out to the farm. And like, what a beautiful place to, to handle food. 
So all of our food um, got picked up um, by a refrigerated truck from our partner, We Don't Waste. And we would bring the food out here. We reallocated our dental team um, because we got PPP, uh, PPP money to take care of our staff. Um, but they didn't want to sit home. They can't really do dental work from home. They wanted to still figure out how they could work. So we reallocated our team out here. So we had our dental director. We had our hygienist, our entire staff out here every Monday and Tuesday bagging food. We partnered with all of our, the resettlement agencies, IRC, ACC, Lutheran, Dr. Cog, a number of different agencies. Uh, we came up with a system where every Sunday night we want you to fill out the spreadsheet of all your targeting single moms and elderly. Um, we want their names, language spoken, address, family size. Sunday night, Monday, we boxed up all the food. Tuesday, we had volunteers come out, staff, and deliver. And so that's where we are today. So continuing to deliver um, to over about 100 families um, every week, um, uh, fresh produce and proteins. And, um, and that's going to be the way moving forward for quite a while because the reality is you can't have 30 or 40 people sitting in your waiting room um, for anything, much as dental service or um, to get food or to see navigation. Navigators worked from home. Navigators had a new challenge because you're used to like, so I've got an, uh, our director is Arabic speaking, he's from Iraq. Um, and in the office setting, if he was helping a client from Burma, um, he could pull our, Burma, our staff from Burma to help translate. But now he's working remotely from home. He's trying to process uh, an unemployment claim. He's trying to process Medicaid applications and it just complicated everything. Um, but we managed to continue to do those things. So really figured out a way to continue serving. Granted, the impact may not have been what it would be, if, but people still could come to us, could still access the services. And now we're open again. Um, farm is running. Um, dental clinic is back. We're in our third week. Um, we started out the month of June just doing three days a week. And starting next week, we'll be at four days a week. Um, navigation is back in office, but everything is completely changed as well. Um, we can't, you know, part of what we, I felt like we've always done well at Project Worthmore is knock down barriers. Like what is the barrier to service? And now, unfortunately, there are barriers that are in place that we can't do anything about. So someone can't just walk into our office and say, I need to see so-and-so. We have to have an appointment now. We need to ask you a number of questions. You have to be screened at the door. So we had to create a whole new position for um, a, a, the office. So we had to have a screener at the front door. Um, and um, so we have a woman from Iraq and a woman from Burma that are splitting that shift every day, giving them an opportunity to earn an income. And those two individuals were, um, they were taking care of babysitting during our English program. English program is on hold because we can't have 25 students sitting side by side but we also wanted to figure out how can we still keep these two ladies employed who rely have been relying on this income for years now with us so we got them trained and now they are our screeners at the front door of our office that just reopened so we're temp checking everyone who comes in staffs getting temp checked twice a day um, every staff member anyone who's in our office has to have a mask on at all times um, we're asking a number of questions. Uh, do you have a cough? Do you have a family member who has COVID? So we have a lot of things that are in place that we did have several months thanks to the PPP program to really think about how 
it was going to be when we reopened. Um, and, and we're reopened and, um, we're having a huge impact already. Like our clinic, uh, yesterday, um, and it just the third week being back, um, had 22 patients that came. Um, and, 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 you know, we can't have people waiting in the waiting room. So things are really different. Um, but, um, I feel like the challenge was there. We met the challenge and in the middle of like tough political climates, I mean, you name it, this work is hard in itself without those things in place. Um, but what I love mostly about, um, what we do is my team. My team is so dedicated to the work that they, they love it so much and, and because they're able to, they see the impact that they're having as well. So that's why like, I'm excited for you to get out and walk the farm, hear from people besides myself. I know I'm the spokesman, I'm the co-founder, but there's a part of me that like, there are so many other people that the inner workings of the organization that have gotten us to this place. And um, that's the most important piece to me, um, having a director for our navigator program who's come from Iraq, who worked for the U.S. Embassy, um, who is having a huge impact. He's doing the hard work. He's working with these families that are just in a really tough space right now. We'd like to thank Frank Anello for joining us at Delaney Community Farms in Aurora, Colorado. You can learn more about Project Worthmore, watch and listen to interviews on E-Town, T-Story, and a tribute to U-Way at projectworthmore.org. Episode 8, Harvesting Hope in Aurora, Colorado, was written and edited by Vincent Hostack with contributions from Janice Pugh Waller. It was recorded on June 23rd, 2020. Theme music was produced, performed, and recorded by John Orr Franklin. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash crossingsrefugees. Drop us a post. Ask us questions. We love them. Twitter at crossings underscore refugees. We are hosted on Anchor at anchor.fm forward slash crossingsrefugees. I'm your host, Vincent Hostack. Thank you for joining us here today. And goodbye for now.